are looking also at a sermon series that we've been going through as a church called Out of Context, where we look at major and common verses that are taken out of context each and every week. Uh, today's text that we're going to look at comes from 1 Corinthians uh, 10, specifically verse 13, that final verse that was read there. And um, before we get into that, why don't we go ahead and pray and uh, commit this time to the Lord. Lord Jesus, thank you for this gathering of brothers and sisters. Thank you that you are doing things in their life in such a way that they're uh, gathered in this place to focus on you and your gospel, your death and resurrection, and all the implications of that uh, in their life, especially for specific things that they may be facing and dealing with right now. So Holy Spirit, take these words and help them to transform our eyes and ears and hearts uh, so that we may receive this word and uh, then go out and apply it into our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> there might have been a, a religious declaration you have heard before, something to the effect of, God will never give you more than you can handle. Ever heard that before? God will never give you more than you can handle. And then the verse that's usually used to justify that promise comes from 1 Corinthians 10.13, which says, God will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. God will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Sounds like a great promise, right? Uh, you may be thinking you're facing something too great, but this promise supposedly says that if you're facing a challenge, suffering, or hardships, good news. It's never more than you can handle. Sounds great. I mean, let's just run this through a scenario, right? Let's just think of something like crazy that could happen to you. Just, just crazy stuff, right? Let's say that somebody close to you that you know has cancer. And then after they get cancer and they finish up treatment, then you move on from that and you see that a virus spreads throughout the globe and around your city, uh, which ends up lasting a couple years. And then not only does that happen, in the same year that this pandemic is continuing on, your city is unrest because of an unjust killing of an African-American man. And then the year wraps up with political unrest because of one of the most contentious elections that you experience in your lifetime. So let's say something crazy like that happens to you, okay? Just, just theoretically, right? You go through all of that, and is that more than you can handle? How do you even know it's more than you can handle? What if you got anxious during that time? Does that mean it's more than you can handle? Or you experienced a panic attack? Or you got so stressed out that you lost some friendships during that time? Or you just decided to, to move and change jobs because you needed some type of change of experience? If you reacted to that scenario that way, does that mean it was more than you can handle? Or maybe you made it through and you stayed put, but... You're just numb now towards your relationships and you're going through the motions at work and you're quiet quitting. Does that mean that that broke you and it was too much for you to handle? Are any of these reactions then a sign that, they, that that scenario was more than you can handle? And if the answer is still no, God doesn't give you more than you can handle, then what does that mean if you respond to things with a panic attack or anxiety or quiet quitting? What does that even mean? Should it have meant that, well, you just weren't strong enough, that God gave you something that you should have been able to handle, but it just it, it broke you, so that means it's on you. And then that raises the question, if that's true, what's wrong with me? 
See, you, you can see how complicated that truth starts to get. Can God give you more than you can handle? Because one of the things that maybe a lot of you have experienced in this room is that you have experienced something that was more than you can handle. So is this phrase even true? So as you can see, with this viewpoint, it can take you to some really, really unhealthy spaces. So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 10.13, look at what it means, and try to understand what is a healthy application of that verse. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians. Some of you that have been here, we, we know that we've preached through the whole book of 1 Corinthians, and it was actually a big chunk of 1 Corinthians that I preached through, all of chapter 10, so I wasn't able to really uh, hone in on this verse. But we need to review uh, the context of 1 Corinthians to really be able to understand uh, verse 13 in chapter 10 anyway. So throughout the first letter of Corinthians, Paul is addressing a lot. And one of the groups that he keeps coming back to is this so-called spiritual elite. It's this group that they think that it's time to move on to the gospel, to deeper things, and that their way of thinking about religious things is the only way, and that their freedom and experience of spiritual things is somewhat exceptional. They consider themselves the spiritual elite. And one way that they apply this framework is how they make decisions. And Paul, in these uh, chapters around uh, 1 Corinthians 10, is addressing a specific ancient problem. And it's this issue, this question, is it okay for Christians to go to this temple? And the temple isn't just a religious place, but it's also a social hub of the city. Is it okay for Christians to go there and to eat meals that include in the meal meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Well, the spiritual elites say, yeah, it's totally okay, not a big deal. Look, God created everything, and idols are fake, so there's no big deal. We have freedom to do this, and if Christians don't have the conscience to be able to do that, well, that's their problem. They're just not strong enough. So that's how the spiritual elite would have answered that question. So they say, yeah, let's go to the temple, eat that meat, sacrifice to idols, not a big deal. And so Paul in these chapters is essentially taking on this question, if we're free to do something in Christ, then does that mean that we can use our freedom however we want? And Paul is essentially saying that's the wrong motivation to answer any question. He says this is the right motivation, and this is where 1 Corinthians 10 ends. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So how does Paul get there with decision-making? So he does ask these questions throughout these chapters. He says, well, does the Bible permit it? If you're trying to answer a question, one of the big things is, what does the Bible say? It says not to do it, don't do it. If it says do it, does that mean I get to do it? Well, there's another question. Question number two, does my conscience allow it? Paul wants you to ask that question as well. So now if you're the spiritual lead, it's like, well, if the Bible permits it and my conscience is okay with it, that means it's okay, right? And, it says, and Paul says, no, there's still some other questions you have to ask and answer. Even if the question, answer to the question, does the Bible permit it, is yes, and does my conscience allow it, is yes, there's still three more questions that Paul gets us to ask in chapters 8, 9, and 10 in 1 Corinthians, and they include this. Chapter 8 is dedicated to considering this question in your decision-making process. What is the effect on other Christians? Because it's not about you, it's also about your brothers and sisters in Christ and how your decisions impact them. Chapter 9 asks this question, what is the effect on those who don't believe? 
Paul wants you to be concerned about how your decision-making impacts the spread of the gospel beyond, uh, uh, beyond your neighborhood, beyond your city, and into the world. He, he cares about how our actions impact the proclamation of the gospel. And then chapter 10, which includes the verse that's taken out of context, the question he's asking there is, what effect does your decision have on your Christian growth? If it's a positive effect, then that's good. You can go for it. But what if it's a negative effect? What happens then? And so all of 1 Corinthians 10 is, is, is trying to answer that question of the decision-making process to get those spiritual elite folks and Christians in general to ask the question in their decision-making process, what effect does my decision have on my spiritual growth? <clears throat> Let's see how he does this in verses 1 through 5 to get us to verse 13 eventually. Look at 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 5. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the, the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. <clears throat> So Paul is looking to the past to provide a warning to those in the present. And he's highlighting this Exodus story where God's people passed through the sea and under the cloud that led them to redemption. And in a sense, he says they were baptized through this process into Moses. And he's drawing an imagery where Christians are going to be thinking about their own baptism into Christ. In addition, he talked about God people eating the bread from heaven and that the water was poured out of the rocks for them to drink. And that would probably bring to mind to Christians how they eat the bread and drink the cup in the Lord's Supper. So he's getting them to see that the Old Testament people of God enjoyed all these blessings and that the New Testament people of God also enjoy these blessings of like baptism in the Lord's Supper. Yet despite experiencing redemption and the nourishment of all these blessings that Christians get, the Lord was not pleased with them, and the text says that their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. It's this vivid imagery of God's judgment that's like a tornado going through a crowd of people. It's that vivid, and he's saying that can happen to God's people, and he's warning them just because you have been redeemed in Christ, baptized in his name, and nourished by the Lord's Supper, you can still do things in how you decide uh, decisions that can displease the Lord and arouse his judgment. And is a vivid reminder to all of us to take heed for that. And he goes on to give four examples throughout chapter uh, 4 from the Old Testament. Uh, and all these examples are sharing this example with a clear point that God's people, they're blessed, but then they end up grumbling, and then God's judgment comes, and it can even come through some pretty extreme and serious means. So why is he giving all these examples? In chapter 10, verses 6 and 11, he tells us why he's giving all these examples. He says, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages have come. And he's essentially saying, 
Look at yourself and see yourself in these stories. You're no better than them. It's not, it's not that you're some type of again, super spiritual elite that can overcome these things and God's judgment and discipline can never come to you. This happened to God's people in the past. It can happen to God's people in the present. So that's the context of the verses leading up to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 and following. And then in verse 12, he says this. So... If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Be careful, he says. Don't get so overconfident in your spiritual abilities that you think that this can never happen to you. And again, this is in the context of decision making. Don't think you can decide whatever you want to decide and that your decisions have no impact on your soul. You need to consider that and whether or not you're using your freedom for Christ not only to benefit brothers and sisters in Christ, not only to advance the gospel in a positive way, but also to nourish your soul to health. And he says, be careful because you could fall in your decision making in a way where God's judgment will come after you. He's getting after that, that tendency that human beings have to think that they be they're better at facing things, that they're stronger at facing things than they really are. Now, when I preached this last time, um, when we were going through the text of 1 Corinthians, uh, I, I was reminded of a story, and I want to tell it again because it's just a fun story to tell, because it was soon after this uh, that I preached this text that I got to go to a basketball game between McAllister and Augsburg, and it was a playoff game, and it was one of those games where... Um, you could tell Augsburg, uh, the men's basketball team, went into that game thinking that they were just going to demolish them, thinking that they were just going to win this game no matter what. And to be fair to them, that was probably their experience, that they had, they had a, an experience of especially getting into the playoff time that, that they often would beat uh, McAllister's basketball team. And, and to be fair, they were ranked higher in this situation. And I remember this one time because I was there and like, there was just rowdy uh, you know, college students all around me. It was a great atmosphere with like a bunch, there was a busload of McAllister students there and I was sitting with them and there was a bunch of Augsburg students and they're just like shouting nasty things to each other throughout the game because it was, it was an intense game and it was close. But at one point during the game, it was right around halftime, Augsburg was pulling away a little bit, and there was this time that this, this player got a breakaway dunk, and after he dunked, he kind of turned to the, the stands where all the McAllister fans were and just kind of showed off. Like, you're going down. Like, what are you going to do about it? Like, the inevitable is going to happen. And then I get the, the pleasure of watching the end of this game where in the final minutes, uh, uh, McAllister comes back goes ahead. Now, Augsburg gets the ball in the final seconds, are, are unable to convert a tying uh, basket. You could just see it, like, hit every part of the rim, and then it goes out, and they lose. Those suckers lose, and it was so great. And I just remember that same kid who dunked that ball and was just so cocky to the to the, to the, to the, uh, those cheering McAllister, he, after, after the ball went out and everybody's freaking out that's cheering for McAllister, he's just like sitting on the ground with his back on the wall with a tear going down his little Augsburg face. And I loved it. I just was like, yes, that's what you get for being so prideful, thinking you're all that, because, because that's what life kind of teaches us sometimes. You think you're a big deal, 
But sometimes things in life show you, no, you're not as strong or as confident as you think you ought to be. There's a same, similar thing here that's in play when Paul is trying to warn God's people not to treat decision-making and especially things for our spiritual health in, in a way that you think that you're all that, that you're beyond temptation, that you're beyond the type of decision-making that could have an impact and a negative impact on your soul. So he warns us in verse 12, and then we get to verse 13, which is the verse that we uh, see is typically taken out of context. Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can endure it. Now, the first important thing to note about this verse is that it's about what? Temptation. It's about temptation. It's not about suffering. It's not about hardship. It's not, it's not, it's not any broader than that. It's specifically about temptation. It's about, it's about temptation, which again, is, it's not sinful, but it's this, this craving of temptation is the thing that tries to pull us into sin. And so when we face that craving, what does Paul say about it? First, he says, well, it's a common human experience. Did you see that? Nothing, no temptation is overtaking you except what is common to mankind. In other words, everybody faces temptation. And this, again, is probably aimed at that so-called spiritual elite. He's saying to them, what you experience when you are tempted is common. Because they're likely saying, especially if they end up end up uh, giving in to temptation, right? So that they're saying like, well, if I gave in to it, that means it was an extreme temptation. It was something that was ex extraordinary, not some type of ordinary temptation. It was something like if, if it got me and I'm such a spiritual elite person, it must have been something exce exceptional. And he's saying to them, no, when you're facing temptation with exaggerated confidence, it can take you out. And a normal uh, 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 experience of temptation can take you out, is what he's saying. Nothing exceptional happening here. It's normal to be tempted as a human being. Second, Paul says that we're not alone when we face temptation. He says God is faithful to his people. And how does he show his faithfulness when we face temptation? He says he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And how does he do that? Well, instead, God provides a way out of temptation, the text says. And again, this is likely aimed at that religious and spiritual elite who are saying not only is their temptation unique, but that they face the type of temptation they're probably saying that, well, I had no other choice. It was so overcoming. It was such a great temptation. It was, it was so extraordinary that, that not, no, no human being could have possibly said no to this. And especially if it got this, this professional spiritual person, that must have been some type of temptation that would have broken anybody. So that's probably how this spiritual lead is thinking about things. And you can see how Paul is aiming these verses at them, saying, no, temptation is common. And that God is faithful, that he allows us the ability to face any type of temptation and say no. You are saying that you face temptations that are almost forcing you to say yes. I'm saying that doesn't happen. That God gives us the ability to say no in the face of any type of tempta temptation. He's essentially saying to them that you think in some situation disobedience. And sin is the only response to temptation. And he's saying, no. No, the response can be always no. 
and you can turn back to Christ because he wants us to follow a pathway to obedience. So maybe to sum it up, he's telling this spiritual elite, you think you're invincible, and you're thinking in other situations that there's only one option, to say yes to temptation. And I'm telling you, flee from temptation. God is making a way for you to go back to Christ each and every time. Don't cave to this craving to get you to sin against your Lord. And Christ shows us the way of this, and he is the one that helps us in these situations. Hebrews 4.15 says that we do not have a high priest, talking about Christ, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. How did Christ flee temptation? We see in the gospel, in the wilderness, when Satan tempts him, he uses God's word and God's truth. And when he's facing the, the agony of the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's, he's in prayer so that he can faithfully face what God is calling him to do. And so when it comes to temptations, Christ is there, and we are never, when it comes to temptations, given more than we can handle. This is key. Paul is talking about temptations. When we face temptations, it's something that's normal, and it is something that we can fight. We don't have to be defeatist that, oh, there's nothing we can do about it. You can fight it, and God wants you to fight it in Christ. So that's what he's saying in this verse. When it comes to temptations, God does not give you more than you can handle. But he didn't address suffering. He didn't address hardship. That's often how this verse is misapplied. So it raises the question uh, from, from the Bible, does the Bible say anything about God giving us more than we can handle? Is that still, even if this isn't the verse to use to back up that statement, is it a biblical statement to say that God never gives you more than you can handle? So I want to close by trying to ask and answer that question. Does God give us more than I, we can handle? And you know, one person that would know about that is Paul, to go back to him. In 2 Corinthians 6 and also chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, Paul shares very openly about all the hardships that he has faced. He's been in constant danger, put into prison, experienced sleepless nights and hunger. He's been beaten with rods, pelted with stones, and shipwrecked three times. These are all the things that Paul faced in his lifetime, and more. I didn't even detail all the things he shared in the second letter of Corinthians. So if Paul faced all those things, that's, that's pretty heavy, right? So how does he describe that? Was that more than he could handle? Well, let's use his words. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 9, Paul writes, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experience in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, and note this, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despise, d d despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So Paul describes the pressures and the, the things he faced and others with him faced as far beyond our ability to endure. And he, felt, he describes it as like facing the sentence of death. So I don't know how you would describe to somebody else that you've reached your breaking point, but it would sound something like this. Paul faced more than he could handle. He says it 
It was more than we could endure. We couldn't take it anymore. And that we even felt like we received the sentence of death. So Paul himself says it. God gave me more than I could handle. Not only me, but all these other Christians and brothers and sisters that were with me that also experienced that. And it gets to this truth that Scripture never sugarcoats. Everyone has a breaking point. Everybody does. And if you think that you don't, you're actually more like the spiritual elite than you are of an ordinary Christian that understands what the Scriptures talk about when it comes to hardships and suffering. Everyone has a breaking point. That's a biblical statement. Not that God won't give you more than that, that, that you can handle. That, that statement, God won't give you more than you can handle, that's toilet water theology. There's nothing in Scripture, there's not a word of Scripture that supports that statement. In fact, it's the contrary. God does sometimes give us more than he, we can handle, and that's what Paul is highlighting. We, it was far beyond our ability to endure. So Paul reached his breaking point, and maybe you have as well, and maybe you will. But the text also says in 2 Corinthians there, chapter 1, 8 through 9, but it's okay if you reach your breaking point. When Paul reached his, he says that reaching his breaking point was not a pointless situation. In fact, God meets us when we have reached our breaking point. And how, Paul says? Paul says when we reach our breaking point, that happens so that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. When you reach your breaking point, it's not pointless because in that moment, you will see in the gospel this call not to rely on yourself, but on God who raises the dead. And that's a place where I've been before where you just look at your world and look at your situation and you're like, I got nothing left. I got nothing left. No human being or friendship or myself. I can't figure this out anymore. I need the power of the one who raised Jesus from the dead to be with me right here. Because this broke me, but it can't break him. Because even death couldn't break him. He can raise the dead. So let me share a story with you about making this real, not only for my life, but in the life of others. So I, I obviously uh, shared that scenario at the beginning, which is the scenario that we've been through, a uh, period of pandemic and unrest and division. And it reminded me uh, about a sister in Christ who, who posted about this particular false truth and how that was impacting her uh, one day. <clears throat> and it was a post that she had uh, a couple months after she also experienced some extreme tragedy. And she's a gospel partner of ours. Her name is Renee Kim. She, she gave me permission to, to share uh, a little bit more of her story. And, and even for, for her and her family, they were an instrumental part of this church. We, we got very close to the Kim family because they were part of the launch team. They helped uh, get Trinity City Church uh, off the ground. And I got to officiate their, their marriage. They were, I think, the second uh, wedding that I got to officiate. Uh, I always joke that it's the first legal marriage that I did because the one that I did before that was already technically legal. It was one of those situations where they got married in a different state and then they wanted to do a ceremony in uh, the other, other person's uh, state. So that one wasn't 
that one wasn't uh, technically uh, legal, which sounds really scandalous, which is why I like to say it that way. Uh, so the Kims were our, my first legal marriage. It was the first one that, that really mattered. I couldn't, couldn't mess that one up. And it happened here, and so we have a very special relationship with them. Uh, and she also experienced just, just the unimaginable before, uh, before the pandemic hit in 2020. She unexpectedly lost her husband. They hadn't even made it to double digits. They had two little kids, and she lost her husband uh, right around uh, the, the, end of the end of that year of 2019, going into the beginning of 2020. And she entered uh, the beginning of 2020 um, uh, having to bury him and, and say goodbye to him forever. And then as soon after that, this just it was more and more, right? She had to go through the pandemic like the rest of us. And that whole scenario that I described at the very beginning of the sermon, she went from losing her husband to going through all that as now a single parent without her husband and the father of her kids. And so she too has heard that verse, that verse taken out of context, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. And she wrote uh, a reflection on that, and, and I want to end by just quoting her reflection on that um, horrible, unbiblical promise. And she says this, quote, God will never give you more than you can handle, says who? I never understood this saying. It's not biblical and, again, not helpful. If God never gave us more than we can handle, then how can we learn to trust him, to lean on him, to humble ourselves before him in complete and utter dependence because we are totally broken. Trials are bound to come in life to all of us, but I am so thankful that I have a God that is loving and kind and perfect, a perfect father and counselor, one who has defeated death and a God that can handle anything. God will, all caps, give us more than we can handle. And she, again, she's posting this a couple months after losing her husband. But not more than he can. I'm going to say that one again. God will give us more than we can handle, but not more than he can. I am so thankful that I don't have to rely on myself to get through such a tremendous loss. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, Psalm 121. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory Beyond all comparison, she's quoting 2 Corinthians 4.17. I think that's key in her grief that she's processing this is that she says, the truth of it is, brothers and sisters, God will give us more than we can handle. But the gospel says this, it's never more than he can handle. Amen, brothers and sisters? Amen. And we were reminded of why that is, because we come to this table each and every week to be reminded of the broken body and shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, who not only died on the cross, but rose from the dead, because we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises from the dead. The music team's coming up here, and then during that first song that they play, you're going to be invited to come up here. And there'll be two people on either side of the communion table distributing the elements of communion. This is one of two ordinances that the church celebrates. We do this every Sunday. And the one-time ordinance that we celebrate is baptism, as it says in the bulletin. Like, if you are here this morning and you've never been baptized, but you believe in Jesus, we call you this month even. Get baptized. Like, go ahead and take the dive because Jesus calls you to proclaim who you are in him through the waters of baptism. 
this doesn't have to be your church home. If you believe in Jesus, we invite you to come to this table. But if you're not there yet, you, you, you are just wrestling through this faith, feel no obligation to participate at the table or to sing. We're just glad that you're here. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. To finish preparing our hearts, let's go ahead and say this prayer of confession together. If we have that. Do we have the prayer of confession up, by the way? No. Well, we'll see if you memorized it. I'll say it. And if, and if you know it, because we say this, like, what, once a month? Let's give it a go. Let's see what happens, all right? Yeah. Most merciful God, we confess that we are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us, so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways, to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Well done, church. Here's the good news, and here's the assurance. Almighty God, in his mercy, has given his Son to die for us, and for his sake, forgives us all our sins. Based on the work of Christ alone, we can be sure of the forgiveness of all our sins in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.